All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Ezra chapter 7. You guys want to hear the joke of the day? I'm going to do four chapters tonight. Four chapters. We'll, we'll, uh, some of them we'll, we'll kind of survey as we go through them, but I'd like to try to finish the book of Ezra tonight. So the best way to move forward and finish the book of Ezra is to back up and, and kind of catch up where, we, uh, where we've come from. But as you guys know, the book of Ezra is the um, nation of Israel coming back from captivity after 70 years in Babylonian captivity. <coughs> they, um, sorry, guys. I need a throat lozenge or cough drop. Nobody has one, do they? I just ran out. I keep this big, huge bag, so I never worry about it. And use the last one. Woo! Oh! Oh, it almost bounced off the chair all the way onto the stage. That was legit. Thank you. See if I can preach and keep it in my mouth. So there's a, there's a transition, and the reason why I back up just a little bit is because we hit this transition between chapter 6 and 7. What's interesting is the book is called Ezra, and it's written by Ezra, but Ezra's not really introduced into the story until tonight. So as the nation of Israel, they fell into sin. God said they were going to go into 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And that's exactly what happened. The northern ten tribes went into captivity in Israel's history before the southern two tribes. And they went in. um, They they just had a bad time. And they they intermarried and, and all kinds of trouble. Well, the southern two tribes, they went into captivity, into Babylonian captivity. And God said through Jeremiah that they would come out after 70 years. And so we read in Daniel... That, that Daniel realized from reading the prophet Jeremiah that the time was up. And they came under King Cyrus, who is a kind of a, a folk hero in Israel to this day, and they have a coin minted to King Cyrus and um, Donald Trump because they say Donald Trump has done things in our day that Cyrus did in his day that he did favors, was a pagan king who did favors for Israel. And he gave um, rights for Zerubbabel to leave Babylon and head back to Jerusalem with all of his rules and uh, or his letters of and they took the gold and the things. So Zorobabel and the first team was about 50,000. Um, you guys remember that left Babylon and went back to Jerusalem and they began to rebuild. And the first thing they built were the foundations and upon the foundation they placed an altar and the altar was the beginning of the, the worship where they began to offer burnt sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. And so we talked about coming back to the Lord and, and sometimes as we wonder when you come back, you always come back to the heart of Jesus and, and it starts with Jesus and our relationship with Jesus and our, um, our, our personal intimacy and time with Jesus. And if we wonder what's lacking, Jesus said in Revelation, return to your first love. And our first love is always Jesus. And so not, you know, so many things in our Christian life that we surround ourselves with um, that are Christianese or things to do, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus, Right. And coming back, and so they, they rebuilt, and then um, in the time, they remember, they faced a lot of opposition. And so there was letters, and they halted the, the work of God, and they stopped building. And remember, during that season, they began to build their own houses, and they just stopped working on the temple and the rebuilding, and, and just focused on their own lives. And they were building nice houses and, and, and life back in Israel and Jerusalem. And then, and then God showed up through the prophet Haggai and, and Jeremiah, and I asked you guys to read um, specifically Haggai. Um, last couple weeks, and if you haven't done that, do that. You want to do that in context of where we are. Read Haggai and Jeremiah. Haggai is only two chapters, so you can handle that, and, and it'll fit right into what we're studying. It'll all make sense. Um, um, 
Jeremiah is a little more, not Jeremiah, Zechariah is 14 chapters, but, and you'll find things throughout there that, that, that identify with where we are. But they challenge the people through these prophets to get back to work, to get back to the building of the temple. And, and, and God said, you're, you're working on your houses while my house is sitting desolate. And so they came back and they began to rebuild. And then when the opposition came back the second time, they worked right through it and they didn't allow the opposition to change. You know, I kind of feel like the same way through the whole coronavirus thing. It's like we took a, a pause. And, and at the time, with the information we had, I think we made the right decision and, you know, and we, we, we closed. But it just never felt right. And we only closed for seven weeks. And we went to online for seven weeks and we came back. And I think Matt was the one and, and uh, who plays the guitar. And he, he had said to me at some point in there, he's like, I'm, I'm never closing again. He's like, I don't care if I'm here by myself. And I said, all right, I'm with you. So if it's just me and you, we're, we, you know, we did it, and, and we did what we felt was right, but we're not closing again. Like, I don't care what happens. The church doors are going to stay open from this point on. And, you know, and then with hindsight being 2020, we, you know, we now have that. And, and again, I, you know, I, I, was, I was sharing this a couple of weeks ago, and someone said, oh, we should have never closed. And I get it. Now, looking back, maybe I could say that. But at the time, it was the right decision. At the time, we, we, were, we thought we could be putting people's health at risk and lives at risk and so we we made the best decision so anyways with them it was the same thing they halted the work they stopped and then what happens and even what's happened through coronavirus is that you you begin to form habits in our lives right and coming to church is a habit and and coming to church is is a lifestyle and so for so many people not not just in our church in our church but nationwide um you know the churches have you know one last pastor's conference i was at was not that long ago three three two three months ago and then we had a panel, and, and the pastors were saying, they went across the board, and they all said about the same thing, 30, 40, 50%, 20% of the congregation have yet to come back. And, and I think with a lot of those folks, um, and I think here as well, I think it's consistent, is that it's not like they have gone to other churches and just left our church for that reason. They just got out of the habit of going to church. And they got out of the, the routine and, and now are just not, never got back into it. And, and it happens. And that's what happened with the people here in this story is they – they just got out of the routine. They stopped it, and they never got back to it until God showed up through the prophets, and he challenged them and convicted them, and they got back to work. And then the second time, which was cool, was when the, when the opposition came, they continued to work through it. Well, they finished the um, the rebuilding. And so at where, we, where we come to in 7, now between chapter 6 and 7, I know it doesn't look like it, but there's a 60-year gap there between 6 and 7. And now we're introduced. Now Ezra, you'll notice he'll start writing. Um, we, uh, they, you know, where it's he, he's in the story. And so Ezra is going to become from Babylon. Now what's cool about Ezra is that he had never been. He would be in the class of those that had never come and never been in his life. He was born in Babylon, had never been to Jerusalem, had never seen the temple. But yet he was a priest, he was a prophet, he had studied and, and learned all of these things about God and his relationship with the Lord. Um, while in Babylon, and so those things obviously were still going on there. You remember when um, they they finished the the temple? We studied where the crowd was. Um, half of them were crying out loud, and half of them were screaming for joy. And the crowd, the half that were crying out loud, were those that had seen the previous glory of the temple and were were crushed because this new temple didn't have the glory. And the other crowd had never seen it, and so they were just stoked it was there. But what's cool is. The, 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 the Bible says through the prophet uh, Zechariah that the new temple, the glory of the new temple would, would um, surpass that of the old temple. Even though it didn't look as great, 
but what would happen there would be greater. And ultimately, that was because Jesus uh, would would be dedicated, and the work that Jesus would do would be in this new temple. And so, God Himself would would grace this new temple that's finished in the presence. And so, um, Ezra now is a man who's who's called by God um, for a specific title, a specific work. And um, the temple is rebuilt. The services are going on. But the spiritual welfare in Israel is is really bad, and there's problems, and there's there's still sin in the nation, and they're not following and reading and studying the word and following the word. And so God calls and raises up this guy in Babylon to go back and begin to work on, you know, just like they work physically on the bricks and the building of the temple, he's going to go back and work on the bricks and the building of the spiritual welfare of um, Israel. And one of the first things he's going to have to do, which we won't actually get until 9 and 10, is deal with... Um, the sin that, that's that's taking place there in the in the nation. And so, verse chapter seven, it says, "Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, what do you say, Artaxerxes? That's kind of cool to say, right? King of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Hatub, da 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 da. Verse five, the son of Abisha, the son of Phineas and Ferb." the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. So there's a genealogy that he's going to start with that brings us back to the key that he's trying to get to, which is Aaron. Now, why is that significant? Who's Aaron? Aaron is the brother of Moses. He is the first high priest of the tribe of Levi. And so Aaron, so he's tracking his lineage all the way back. Now, one of the things that was happening is some couldn't do that or they didn't have the pure line bloodlines that, that he had. So he's, again, just proving that he could prove his genealogy all the way back to Aaron. Um, you guys don't have to worry. You you guys, God can track your genealogy all the way back to Adam and Eve. It'd be fun to do someday, huh, in heaven? Hold your line and see who your 30 times removed great-great-grandma is. So this Ezra... Now, he wants to be specific here in verse 6. This Ezra, the one who could be traced back to Aaron, came from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe. Everybody say skilled. In the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given, the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So, again, he, he we're going to see here about Ezra. I'll point it out in a minute, which I love about him, is that this is a guy that was was passionate about the word and he had a heart for the Lord. He loved people and he loved God. And so his first qualification in ministry was his heart of passion. But beyond that, he also had a skill that God had given him as a priest. He knew the word of God. He studied. He was a student. And so you, you know, in ministry, you, you, you need both of those things, you know. And sometimes, unfortunately, what we do in certain seminary settings and, and other places is we, this idea that, you know, I go through the school, I take the classes, I get the diploma, and then I can go and do the work of the Lord. But honestly, the work of the Lord is a call that, and a gift that God gives. Now, the schooling and, and those things, they're, they're helpful, and God uses them, and, but you can't separate the two you, without the call of God. And the paper, the diploma, doesn't um, qualify anybody for ministry. What qualifies you for ministry is the call of God. And, and if God calls you, he also gifts you. you know. And I know maybe some in the intellectual community would disagree with me, even in the movement of Calvary Chapel, you know, in 1994, Calvary Chapel started in the late 60s with 25 people in a small church in Costa Mesa. And by 1994, Calvary Chapel had become the largest, 
kind of world. And, and so much of Calvary Chapel is um, untrained, un, not seminary pastors who, who just God got a hold of their hearts and they were former drug addicts and um, all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and many of those pastors now, I choose, but many of those pastors, they, they have doctorate degrees now, honorary doctorate degrees, because they had they pastored the largest churches in America. And Jesus wanted to be a and so they came and offered him honorary degrees, doctorate degrees in theology. And so several of the Calvary pastors, big Calvary pastors, have our doctors now, honorary doctors. Uh, you have to qualify that. So if you want to introduce, I'm doctor so-and-so, but I'm honorary doctor so-and-so. But again, and, and I don't... Education is um, necessary and, and it's important, but as long as those that we understand, all I'm really saying is that the, it's not what qualifies you for ministry. It's not a diploma. You know, we don't do, uh, let me bring it up here, look back. We don't do, the ordination comes from God. What the church does is we recognize, and if we ordain somebody, um, we give you a certificate, and you know sometimes you need that for practical reasons in ministry. But we're not saying when we ordain somebody that you know we're we're ordaining you to do ministry. What we're saying is we recognize God's call and gifting on your life, and our, as a peer group, we can see that God has called you, and so we're recognizing that, right? Amen. So we see Ezra, the skilled um, scribe, verse six. Lots in verse six in the law of Moses which the Lord God of Israel had given. So again, who gives it? The Lord God. It's where the gifting comes from, the call comes from. And the king granted all his requests. You know, this is the, the, the king, the actual pagan king, not our Lord king, but um, I, I liken that the, this, this verse is that he got all that he requested. And you know, we have several verses, several promises in the New Testament that are kind of hard to swallow because God promised, Jesus promised in the New Testament that you'll receive all that you pray for. You think, well, that doesn't practically live out in my life. There are some qualifiers, but he says in uh, Matthew, let me read it. In Matthew, he says, and whatever thing you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. In some versions, it says, and all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Do you guys feel like you receive all things that you ask for? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's 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 actually a good good point. Maybe not in the way that, you know, we we're expecting it, but God does absolutely give us all things that we need and all things that we ask for that that, that He knows we need. But here He receives all, and so we see the hand of God in favor. And it says that the hand the of the Lord God, and that's capital L O R D. So is there? That's Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton. His God was upon Him. You know, um, in Zechariah as well, it says, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And again, that kind of goes back to the whole education argument, you know, that it's it's by the spirit of God that we do ministry. It's by the power of the spirit of God that we do ministry. Um, maybe through the education, you know, those things help. But here, you know, it's like, oh, man, Ezra, you got lucky. You know, the king helped you out and you got to go back and you happened to be, you know, a good student. No, he didn't get lucky. God's hand was upon him. He gifted him. Verse 7, it says, Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, that's the worship team, 
I always highlight this. I mean, you guys probably get tired of hearing it. You faithful Wednesday night folks because I talk about it all the time every time it comes up. But worship is prescribed by the Lord through music. We get that from the Word of God. You'll see it consistent all the way through our Bibles. And so here the singers are highlighted all the way through this book. The worship team is highlighted. And everywhere we see them, it's always um, a one-two punch in, in, in ministry and, and things that, that, that God has prescribed to worship Him with. With, um, you know, lots of things. I always say the one-two punch, worship and the Word. But, you know, there's actually four things that are included. Worship, the Word, fellowship, and prayer. And so, um, in verse number 8, it says, or 7, or the singers, the rest of 7, and gatekeepers and Nephanim came to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is in the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. Where was Ezra from? Babylon, right? And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. And so he left on the first day of the first month, and he landed on the fifth. So about four months, maybe four and a half months to travel. It was a 900-mile um, journey. And so I, I think I've heard, and I didn't look it up today, but I think I've taught before, heard that, that on foot in, in the old days that they, they could cover 20 miles a day. It seems like a lot. But if it's 900 miles... Um, and, and it took him five months. He only covered six miles a day. If he actually covered 20 miles a day, um, it would have took him 45 days to get there. So how far do you guys think you could walk in one day? I don't know what he covered. Depending on what kind of terrain you're going over as well and what you're doing, you know. One day I walked from my bedroom to the fridge. I had to take a break, though, before I opened it. And so in verse... Um, in verse 9, again, we have this repeated. And again, um, when we see things repeated in a chapter, in a verse, that's there by design, by the Holy Spirit, to, to create emphasis on a certain aspect of a passage. It's a great way to study your Bible. It's a great way as you read your Bible. If you start to notice something that's been repeated in the same chapter multiple times, you underline it, you highlight it, and it'll set a theme for you. But here, it's, again, it's, it's recorded in verse 9, but a second time, we're going to see it again later, that the good, this time it's the good hand, of God was upon him. And, and so it's it's God's presence in Ezra's ministry and his life that gives him success. And and that is just so important that, you know, for in your life and in your ministry and in things that God wants to do in and through you, it's God's presence that's going to give you success. And so, the, again, the skill and those things, he is a skilled guy. He had some practical skills and he had some training. But, but the training and the hand of God is the key to success there. And so we'll see that, again, all the way through the Scriptures, the preparation and the presence and the hand of God. And, and you know what? You, you you could get away without the preparation with just the hand of God and the presence of God, but you can't get away um, without it. And so he came there in verse 10. It says, For Ezra had prepared his heart, everybody say his heart, to seek the law, the law of the Lord and to do it. Is that where Nike got their saying? Everything comes out of the Word of God. They think they made it up, but they didn't. They stole it from God. It says, just do it. And to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. And so, kind of verse 10 is a, is a, is a summary of the character of who Ezra was. Highlight that in your, in your Bible. You see four things there. I can make four things out of it anyways. Um, but first, he prepared his heart. You know, um, when, when I teach, when I share, when I do any kind of public speaking, the the, the bigger part of the process for me is to prepare my heart, you know, and that's the most important part, I think, you know, is that 
you know, I'm constantly, before I get up on a Wednesday, before I get up on a Sunday, I've spent time trying to prepare my heart and praying and seeking God and repenting and, and, and getting right. And, um, you know, it starts with a heart, a heart that just is humbled and a heart that, that knows that it's not a gift or a skill that, uh, or it is a gift, but it's not a skill that I possess that I just get up and, and flaunt a skill, that it's, 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 it's God's presence and God's power and God's Holy Spirit being with me and in my heart. My heart has to be right for that. My heart has to be right for ministry. And so important, such a big part to get our hearts right with the Lord. You know, worship, again, we just talked about singers, but to worship is, is, a, is a process. And for me, it's a lot of things, but worship and prayer are kind of the two things, the avenues that I use to prepare my heart as I do ministry or as I have opportunities to do ministry, whether I'm preaching a wedding or a funeral or anything. It's always the same. It's always a, a process that goes into it of preparing the heart. And so it's awesome. This is what Ezra is. He prepares for his heart. Uh, you know, and li- like, you know, I-, I used to think that I um, I had some weird things through through years of being in Bible college and learning and growing. And I, I for one, I had told myself nobody ever told me this. I had to have a pastor to read this. I had told myself that um, if I was going to preach a message, I had to pray in, in the Spirit for the same amount of minutes that I was going to preach to cover my time while I was preaching. So, if, you know, I figure a message is usually 40, 50 minutes that I'd have to pray in the Spirit, specifically in the Spirit, for 50 minutes to prepare for that message. Oh, my gosh, it was so much work, and it was so scary. It was like, because I, you know, I, and I had told myself this, this nonsense, and I got up there, and I said, I cover it? Do I, you know, and God, God wasn't in that, but it was, you know, what I had told myself. And But, but I do want to prepare, and we should prepare. And it is a good idea to pray in the Spirit and do those things, but preparing the heart um, through prayer, through worship. Today, my discipline is um, some time in prayer, um, seeking the Lord, you know, getting right. And then as I, I worship here corporately, you know, the last thing I'm doing up here is, is, is preparing my heart before the Lord and, and seeking His face. So, And then the second thing we find there in verse 10, we're going to camp on verse 10 for a minute, and then we're going to jam through the rest. Um, so worship and prayer to prepare the heart. And then we see that He sought the Word. Um, and obviously that's that's important. It said to seek the law. And so we have the word of God. Now we have these these pillars of Acts 2.42 that I just talked about kind of coming together here. And the next one is the word. And so there's a diligence in, in spending time reading the word, preparing. And so, you know, everybody's different. You know, as we prepare for messages, pastors are all different. Some, some of my, my favorite pastors um, write everything, every word that they say out. And they read it. But they've been doing it so long that, you know, for me, if I'm reading something, it, like, it feels awkward because you guys know I'm reading. And, um, but they do it in such a way, like, they're reading the sermon, and and you can't tell because they've done it so long. And I don't know, I'd lose my place. And one particular pastor, one of the bigger Calvary pastors, um, he, he came and he preached for us. And, and it was uh, uh, four services on a Sunday morning. And word four word identical all services that he preached i mean not one different word the entire thing he said he was just and he was amazing people amazing people um and then other pastors that you know like john corson for example he he has these he, he sits on a chair like this he has this like small little bible and he has his finger in it and he just sits on his chair with his bible no notes no room in his bible even to write notes and if you're just, I just, I listened to him for a long time before I actually watched him preach. And then, um, 
he'll do things like 14 things why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and all and list one and then I'll have scriptures with them and he does it all from just just memory and just gets up and talks you know and his won't be identical word for word from service to service but you know it's like I don't use much notes either I write some notes in my bible and things but something like that I would definitely write that out and have that out because I'd be afraid I'd forget in the middle but he doesn't no notes you know Pastor Gerald's a no notes guy and so he calls it the crockpot method. And that's kind of by default, you know, uh, the way I preach. I kind of just copied exactly as Gerald trained me, and, and I kind of adopted Gerald's style. And um, But, you know, I just prepare all week. I, I We used to read all the commentaries on the chapters. We read the different guys we we read. And then um, and then as, and then once you've done all the commentaries, then, then you read through it, and then you start adding your notes and kind of how I still do it. But now I listen. So I listen to uh, other commentaries are all on tape nowadays. And so I'll, I'll listen through the week to the, to the chapters I'm teaching on tape. And then as we get closer to the message, then I um, then I read through the chapter. And I do take a few notes on what I listen to. And so I'll kind of go through those. But the first time I'll just read through it and, and what comes to memory, I'll start making notes and little notes in my Bible. My notes are like, I have a note that says Roswell. That's all it says. But to me, when I see that, then I tell this story about my friend Roslyn and um, this thing that happened between her and I. And I'll just tell you guys a story. But that's an old note. But Roslyn was, was um, my best friend, Jason Habertate, who was here, who's a missionary in um, Georgia. By the way, he's coming in February on a Sunday morning. Uh, his mom's Roslyn. And they were very instrumental in me coming to Christ. And one day her and I were driving um, and we saw some flowers by the side of the road. And... Um, and I told her, wow, those are really cool. I said, maybe I'm going to come back tonight and get to take those. Because it was during the day. And she's like, why do you want to come back at night when it's dark? Do you think nobody will see you at night? you think God won't see you at night when you, when you come back and steal those flowers off the side of the road? And, and so, again, in my, you know, I just have these little tiny notes, little words that I write. And it's called the crock pot. I put it all in during the week. And then when I get up to preach, it's, you know, maybe sometimes it seems like I'm rambling or going on, but it's just as the Spirit leads, and it has to already be in my heart to come out because I, I tried to do notes, you know, in the early days, and Gerald said, no, you don't need notes. Just, and I was too afraid to get up and, and without notes, and I, I was one of those guys. I fumbled through my notes. I couldn't handle them, and so it's just kind of the way I adopted. Now, you know, as Josh is coming up, and I'm, I'm kind of helping and training Josh a little bit, I would never want to keyhole him to the style that I use. I want him to find his style, but you know, give him some ideas and encourage him in some directions as he as he preaches. But um, all of this was just to say that there's a preparation that goes in to the Word of God and to studying and teaching the Word of God. You know, and different times depending on what message, how many hours you know it takes a week to prepare, or how much time I put into each one. But there's a there's a process of seeking the Word and studying the Word. And then the second, then the third thing I find in verse ten is that it says he did it. To do the or, or seek the law of the Lord and do it. Now, one of the things that um, one of the things that I've shared with you guys a million times is the the promises of God's word that God will give you prosperity and good success if you study the word of God. That's repeated several times in the word. Psalms chapter one, Joshua chapter one. I'll read the one in Joshua two for you. Um, it says, "This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth." But you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. 
And so I take that, Psalms 1, a couple other places, and I've always encouraged you that God's Word promises that if you want prosperity and success in your life, the formula is to be in the Word of God, meditate on it day and night. But there's a qualifier here. And, and, and we find it in, in, in the other places in the Bible. But look what the qualifier is. It doesn't just say meditate in the, in the Word of God day and night, which is the prescription, but it says that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. So, you know, what did James tell us about this topic? James said, be ye doers of the Word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And so we, we do. We find this blessing in being in the Word of God day and night. But it doesn't do us no good just to be in the Word of God and then not do anything that it says. You know, we had this uh, funny story. It's old now, but Chuck tells this story about there was a, a some woman, and she was like uh, the nude model of the year. And she won this competition for nude model of the year. And in the interview, she said, yeah, I go to Calvary Chapel. <laughs> and Chuck's like, well, it doesn't mean you're good to go to Calvary Chapel if you don't do anything that you're learning. And if you're learning anything, you'd probably keep your clothes on, you know. And, and so, you know, we have to be doers of the word as well, walking it out. And so for, for, for Ezra, he, he purposed in his heart and he sought his heart to get his heart right with the Lord. He began to study the word. And then he began to do the things that God's word says to do. And so the Bible says, be don't be hearers of the word only but doers you're deceiving yourself if you don't want to obey and follow the word and then we're held to a standard you know there's um between what we know and and that it's sin if we don't do it once we know it so some people say well then i'm not going to read the bible or learn things because then i'll know stuff that i could be innocent of if i don't know them no that's the wrong approach um so he walked it out that's what i put there next to do it so we have prepared his heart worship and prayer seek the word study and then doing it is just walking it out or walking in the spirit um, living it out and then the last thing he did as a result of all these things verse 10 look at verse 10 what's the last thing he did there was he teach statutes and ordinances in israel and so when all those things when you have all those things together then then we're we're able and we're ready to teach the word of god but all those things have to come first the heart the word of god walking it out living it and then um, doing it. You know, I can't tell you guys, don't steal, and then I come to your house, and, you know, when I leave, your spoons are falling out of my pocket or something, you know. I, you have to do it and, and be, to be ready to teach it. And then in verse 11, he says, um, this is a copy of the letter Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, experts of the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes in Israel. So we're not going to read the king's letter. You guys can read that on your own if you like, but this is the wording of the actual letter that Artaxerxes would have sent um, with Ezra to come back. I'll just give you a little background. Um, Artaxerxes' father is Xerxes. So if you're Xerxes and you have a son, is Artaxerxes. And so he was the first king, or Xerxes I was the king of Persia. And now I, I told you between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's about a 60-year time frame between them finishing and then God sending Ezra here. Well, in that gap there between 6 and 7, you can put the book of Esther. That's where the book of Esther fits in. So write Esther there next to verse 1 of 7, and then read the book of Esther. It's a short and easy read, too. Um, but it was this Artaxerxes in verse 12 and 10 and uh, 11 that we see there. It was his dad, Xerxes, who was the king of Persia at the time that we, we read about in um, Esther chapter 1. He's also called Ahasuerus. 
is the other name. You'll read that in, in, in Esther 1. And it was Ahasuerus, the king, who married um, Esther. And then you guys know the story of Esther. God used Esther to preserve the people of Israel um, against uh, the, the gallows of Haman. Haman's a bad guy. I always get Haman and who's the good guy? Mordecai. I always get them two mixed up. Haman's a bad guy. Mordecai's a good Mordecai. Yeah, Mordecai saved the king's life, and then um, and then the king remembered him, and it turned the plot of Haman, who was going to exterminate all the Jews against him, and he hung on his own gallows. Well, that was that's the Artaxerxes. Now, this is his son, and again, as there's gaps, we're, we're going through changing of kings. When we get to Nehemiah, we'll see Artaxerxes. Longimanus is the one that's going to give the decree to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the wall. That particular decree. Now, there's four decrees, and I told you guys that we're going through Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah through this period of the post-exilic, or after the 70 years of exile, that there was four different decrees, and we come to three of them, and the fourth one we'll find in Nehemiah, and that's kind of the important one because that's the one that Daniel marks in Daniel 9 that marks the time frame uh, for the prophecy of when Messiah the King would come. And so that's the Artaxerxes Longimanus in uh, Nehemiah 4. And then in verse number uh, 27, after the king's letter, Ezra reads the letter, and it says, his response, he's so blessed by the letter from the king. He said, blessed be the Lord God our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem that the king wants to beautify the house of the Lord because he sent gold and silver and all kinds of things. And so it wasn't even just the actual bricks and building, but there was um, beautification that was going to take place and blinging it out, as we would say today. And so he's blessed by the Lord, and, and he blesses God. Now, the king is the one um, who gave the decree, who sent the gold, who sent the silver. But, but Ezra, in his wisdom, he's not thanking the king. You know, and he's so blessed by this letter and the result. He doesn't say, oh, art Xerxes, what an amazing, you know, who, who is he blessing? He's blessing the Lord, right? It's the Lord. And ultimately, he sees it's God who opened the door. And God uses men, but ultimately it's the Lord. And it works in the other way, too. You know, the Bible says that that um, promotion comes from the Lord. That's the NIV. That's the way I remember it. The first Bible I got saved in. And I can remember, you know, even at, you know, Joshua Springs, we had a, you know, hundred people on staff and nine different pastors um and, and over the years you know people would get upset with pastor gerald um because they didn't get a promotion or they didn't get a position that they wanted and they'd be bitter about it and some of them over the years had left and they left bitter because um pastor gerald didn't give them a promotion and didn't give them the job that, that they were supposed to have and um you know, ultimately, that, that, that's a mistake because, yeah, Pastor Gerald was the one that God was using, and he did have the decision to make those decisions, but ultimately their beef was not with Pastor Gerald. It was with the Lord, right? Because God is the one who brings promotion. And if God wants you to have that position or be in that spot, God is very capable of giving it to you. You know, and the people that are above you, are, are they're, they're there, but ultimately God is sovereign, and God is in control. And so don't, don't be upset with the bosses and the people around you. And in a secular setting, you know, Obviously, there's a little different context, but at the same time, you know, don't put that on 
the flesh, right? That seek the Lord and keep yourself humble and say, God, what, you know, if God wants you to move and promote or whatever it may be, or um, that God has the sovereignty and ability to do that. And so here, uh, um, Ezra realizes that. He gives the Lord the credit, verse 28. And he has extended mercy to me before the kings of his counselors and before all the mighty princes. You can underline when you see it in here, again, by repetition. I just pointed out because of the repetition, the word mercy and grace. We're going to see where Ezra is going to comment many times on God's mercy and his grace through this process. And in verse, uh, the rest of 28, so I was encouraged. Everybody say encouraged. I love that. I love that, right? It's encouraging. The word of God is encouraging. God's word is intended to encourage us. As the hand of the Lord, my God, was upon me. There again, we have that repetition of the hand of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D there. God was upon me. And I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. So that that would be um, while still in Babylon, he's receiving this letter. He's, he's getting, he hasn't left yet. They're going to leave, I think, in verse uh, 15 of chapter 8 is when they, they get ready to leave. So he's starting to gather men, to gather gold, silver, the things that the king was going to uh, send with him in the letter that I didn't read. And then chapter 8 says, These are the he- heads of the fathers' houses of this genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. And so um, these are those that traveled with Ezra, chapter or verses 2 through 14. You can read those on your own if you like. They're just genealogies or names list. Um, important for the records, though, for Israel to have those. Not necessarily um, relevant for us today or right now. And then it says in verse 15, I don't mean that they're not relevant for today. The Word of God is always relevant for today. I just mean for tonight's Bible study. Verse 15, now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. And so what we're going to see here in the beginning of this chapter is that as Ezra is going to plan this this trip back to Israel, he knows the call of God. His call is to go back and help their spiritual condition, that he's going to do some wise things that we can learn from. You know, he's going to first take three days, and he's going to meet with the people that are that are sent to go. He's got this group. Now, the first group that went back was 50,000. The group that's going to go back with Ezra was only about 5,000 people. It was a small, much smaller group. But in this group, he, he takes the leaders and the heads, and he gets away, and he's going to talk with them and plan with them, and he's going to pray with them and fast, and they're going to seek the Lord, and they're going to meet and spend some time to strategize as they go forward. You know, Jesus said that, that we should count the cost. We should count the cost of, of, of those things that he's called us to do and take some time um, in ministry and in life to, to sit down first and consider them. And then the, the really the, the main idea, though, is to pause before we, we go out for the Lord to spend time with the Lord. Amen? Amen. So they're going to do that. In verse 16, it says, Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elani, Jeroboam, Nathan, my son, Zechariah and Miliam, leaders of the Jorah, Ethiopia, and the men of understanding. And I gave them a command for Edo, the chief man, at the place Pasiphia. And I told them what they should what they should say to Edo and the brethren and the Nephinim in the in the place of Cassia, that they should bring us servants for the house of God. So again. He met with them. They strategized, right? He told them what they should say to Edo. And then in verse 18, 
then by the good hand of our God. Have we heard that before? I think that's the fourth one I read, the good hand of our God. You guys ever hear people say things like the man upstairs or the good old boy or uh, such a pet peeve of mine when someone says that. I'm like, you just don't know Jesus if you use those terms. So don't don't ever say the good old boy upstairs or a man or I guess it's okay to say the good Lord. That's that's probably proper, the good Lord. But um, I don't know, when you make him the man upstairs, that's, that's so impersonal and, and, and usually something that, that people that don't know Jesus say. Um, but the good hand of our God was upon us. Amen, man. Amen and amen. I cannot stress enough that just the presence of God in everything we do as Christ followers and everything that we want to prepare and speak is, God, be with me. Let your hand be on me. And if God's hand is on us, we can't fail. And that's what they're going to find out. And they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mahali, the sons of Levi, the sons of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and brothers, 18 men. And Hashabiah, these are impossible. This is just to embarrass me, huh? And with him, Jeshahiah, the son of Merarah, his brothers, and the sons of... 20 men, also of the Nephinim, who David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nephinim, all of them were were designated by name. And then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our children and our little ones and all our possessions. Highlight verse 21 there, you guys. That's a key verse in all in this chapter. And, and again, we learn things from from Ezra and his plan here as he's approaching ministry. And, and it says that he proclaimed a fast. You know, they got away to fast. So they have these three days down there by the river. And he gathers these men and they start to talk. And then he proclaims a fast. And he says, for three days we're here to seek God. You know, this could turn into a vacation. And, you know, we're barbecuing and having fun. And the Lord gets left behind. But as, as we get away and fast, um, one of the things practically it's just going to do, it's going to keep the Lord in the center of all we do that whole week, the whole three days. You know, um, we, we would have a, a regular staff retreat um, once a year. We always did it in August, right before the school year started. And it would be a, a we usually didn't do three days. We'd do like a weekend or a two-day um, fasting and praying where all the pastors and the, and the leadership staff would get away. And we'd have fun too, but at the same time, it was a time to fast and pray and seek the Lord. And that discipline is, again, it's, it's a great discipline for all, anybody as a Christ follower. You know, if, if you're in a lull, you're in a, you're a place, you don't even have to be there. Just schedule it once a year in your life. You know, it's, it's practically it's not always easy to do, but spend some time, get away. Even you can do it for one day. You know, when the weather's nice. Go, you know, not when it's hot, not when it's cold. And, you know, I, I, I like to go up Middle Canyon. I've done it several times where... You know, I've just gone up Middle Canyon and, and spent a day up there fasting and praying and just with the Bible and a bottle of water and, and, and just get away. And then other times where, you know, i got a couple of days to get away for a couple of days and fast and pray. Um, but those are great disciplines. You know, you'll draw close to the Lord. You'll, you'll hear the, the voice of the Lord. And um, God will be able to, to quicken you. Now, he's going to tell us specific reasons why. You know, one of the things you find in the Old Testament with fasting, it was often associated with mourning. And, and, and really, which is a good thing, because mourning is associated with repentance. And so a heart was broken over sin. And, and I don't know if we um, if we always get that way. I know we, we confess our sin, we want to repent, and those are things that we practice probably. But do we 
do we really get to that point where we're broken and we mourn over our sin? And that's the place God wants us to be, is, is to have where, where it hurts our heart that we, we're, we're truly repentant. You know, to say sorry, it's, it's pretty easy to say sorry, but forgive me is, is different because forgive me in this guilt and that, that I'm, I'm culpable, I'm responsible, and I don't want to do that anymore. And so forgive me, and I have a heart that's broken before the Lord. So we'll see here that, um, that, that there was a part of it um, that we'll get later where there was some mourning over sin involved. But practically what he's going to tell us is they were seeking direction, they were seeking wisdom, and then um, um, down in 24 and 25 they were seeking protection. So they had some specific things that they were fasting for. I think that's wonderful. I think that um, having a specific topic that you fast for is a great idea. You know, usually big decisions in your life. You're going to change a job. You're going to get married. You're going to whatever. You're going to make a big financial decision. You're going to you have some choice in your life that you want to make sure you stay on the right path. That's a great time to spend a day fasting and praying. Get away and fast and pray. And again, don't, don't you know, think you have to get away to fast and pray. Sometimes that's not practical or that's very rare. But fasting and praying is an important discipline of Christian living. And, you know, how do you fast? You know, some people say, oh, in order to fast right, you have to do water only. And that's not necessarily true. I would encourage that, you know, if you can take a day and do a water only day, it's great. But even on a water only day, um, you know, there's a book by Stovall Weems, and it's called The Great Awakening. And it's a, it's a, it's a book on fasting. And he goes through all, it's, it's really good. Encouraging us, talks about all the different kinds of fast, ways to fast, a bunch of different ideas, none of it necessarily bond, but just the whole gamut of fasting. Um, Stovall Weems, if you're interested in the topic of fasting. But one of the terms he uses in that book is um, to stay in the zone. And, you know, if, you, if you're fasting and you, you, know, you go and you go to just double cheeseburger, french fries, and you'll, you're out of the zone. You got full, you're done. But on a water-only day, stay in the zone. And so you maybe, you know, rather than just break your fast because you're so hungry and you're not going to handle it anymore, eat a couple crackers, have an apple, you know, get a, get a, a smoothie or something and do something where you stay in the zone, but you um, don't completely break your fast. And then, you know, so I, I usually recommend three types of fast, good way to do it. If I do a long, longer fast, like, a, you know, we've done a couple 21-day fasts. Um, I mix it up between three different choices, and every day I just kind of choose randomly or kind of arbitrarily between the three choices. There's water-only days, and then there's fruits and vegetables days, like a Daniel fast, and then juice-only days. And, and, and I think I got that out of Stovall Weems' book as some, some options for fasting. So water-only, fruits and vegetables, or juice-only days. And then in the morning or the night before or whenever, I decide what I'm going to try to commit to for the next day, and then I try to keep stay in that. And again, on a fruits and vegetables day, on a juice day, I just want to stay in that zone where I don't have to be so miserable that I'm starving to death. Because that's not what it's about anyways, you know. The, when, when you feel the hunger pains, but when you're not eating, you're thinking about it all day. And as you think about that, that's a constant reminder to do spiritual things, to pray, to, to read the Word. And then, you know, and then the, another idea is that if I'm going to spend, you know, how much time do you guys think you spend a day preparing your meal? Maybe some days more than others, but, you know, if it takes you 15 minutes, 10 minutes to make your lunch, you know, an hour to make your dinner or whatever, you take that time and you, you get alone with the Lord and you open the Word, you pray, and you replace those things with that. And so, um, important discipline in life, fasting, right? You guys are looking at me like, you could probably use the fast a little bit more. 
I've tried to do, um, I've tried to like, like double dip, I guess I'd call it, you know, where I was telling myself it was, I'm going to do a fast, a spiritual fast, and I'm in my mind I'm thinking, I'm going to fast to try to lose weight. Never goes well. I don't even know why I'd admit that to you, but <laughs> I, I have, I have kind of been like, I'm going to fast to lose weight, you know, because it's worked. When I did a 21-day fast, I lost lots of weight, you know, and there's other times where, you know, I still want to make it spiritual, but can Lord, can I double dip? I'll get to the bonus of losing the weight, and I get it fast. But I'm really going in with the idea to lose a couple pounds, and I haven't done well on those ones. i gotta, I got to keep it to being spiritual fast for it to really work. Um, so uh, verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Hava. We might humble ourselves before God to seek him for the right way. And I already read this one, so I'm just going through it. Us and our little ones and all our possessions. So just really quickly there, he said to seek the Lord the right way. And just to know there is a right and a wrong way that, that you find that all through scriptures too. I think of the um, um, those that offer trained fire. Yes. I'm going to say sons of Sceva for some reason, but it was Korah. They offered strange fire on the altar, and it was it was a wrong way, a way that God didn't prescribe to, to worship him, and um, they were all killed for it. In verse 22, it says, For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy of the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon us. There again, all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. Um, there's a little detail that I did highlight a couple weeks ago. In verse 22 and 23, what he's talking about is when King Artaxerxes was going to send him back, he said, well, you, I'll send you with soldiers. And, you know, the 900-mile road, there was thieves out there, and there was, there was lots of dangers on this road. And Nehemiah said, or Ezra said to King Artaxerxes, nah, God's going to protect us. And now they're there. And they're gathered together, and they have all this gold and silver they're bringing from Babylon. Tons. It'll give us the list of how much is there. So they're traveling with a bunch of cash on these dangerous roads. And now they're getting, like, feeling the reality of it. Like, it was easy standing before the king and, and just kind of boasting a little bit and like, oh, no, Lord, oh, God's going to protect us. And now I got the money, and I'm getting ready to go on a 900-mile trip, and I'm like, uh-oh, are we going to be Okay. And so they're like, well, should we go to the king and say, uh, King, I'm sorry, we, we, we do need those soldiers. And so here what Ezra decides, and he tells the men here in verse 22 and 23 is, we, we, I'm embarrassed, he says. Or what's the, is that the word he used? I'm ashamed. He's like, I'm, I'm ashamed. I don't want to go back to the king and ask for these men that we need. He says, so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna trust God. We're going to fast, and we're going to seek the Lord. And, you know, again, there's, there's a wisdom, right? Like, I'm all about, and I, and I think we need to stick to our guns and trust the Lord, you know, but, but not foolishly. Like, God doesn't ask for that or prescribe that, you know. It's the old story of the, the guy, there was a flood, and, and the, the flood waters were rising, and the guy went and got on his roof, and, and the flood waters were coming over the top of his house, and a, a guy comes by in a, uh, on a little dinghy boat, and he's like, hey, get in, man. The guy's like, I'm trusting the Lord. God's going to save me. And, and then a guy, the water keeps rising and rising, and now the water's on his over the roof and to his knees and guy comes by in a jet ski and he's like jump on man he's like the lord's gonna save me i'm good and the guy takes off and now the water's rising up to his neck and a helicopter flies over and drops a rope says jump on he says i'm i'm waiting for the lord and then he dies 
And he gets to heaven. He's like, God, I thought I trusted you. I thought you were going to save me. He's like, I sent you a boat, a jet ski, and a helicopter. Why didn't you get on a flight? I did try to save you. That's why there's a wisdom, right? But at the same time, to, to really trust the Lord um, in these things. There's no way we're going to finish. <laughs> I guess we're, you know, at 9 and 10, got some good stuff. There's no way I could breeze through in a few minutes because we're going to be talking about unequally yoked and, um, and really this whole debacle that was taking place that Ezra really went back to deal with. If you guys read ahead, uh, I'm going to finish. Don't close your Bibles just yet. I want to finish um, 8, but we're not going to finish 9 and 10. We will do that next week, but read ahead because um, it's, it's really good, the next two chapters and what he's dealing with. And so it says that they fasted in verse 23. They entreated God for this, and he answered their prayers. And in verse 24, and I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brethren with them. And weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who present offered. And I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, articles of weighing 100 talents and 100 talents of gold. So he's got 12 guys. He separates all this stuff between the 12 guys. Tons of stuff. But then um, in verse 33, we'll get to it. He's going to check and see if they all showed up with what he sent them with. Accountability. So he, he, he um, dishes out all the gold, 27, 20 gold basins worth a 1,000 drachmas and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also. And the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord God of your fathers. And so a little kind of, you know, pep talk to these guys because the temptation would have been there, right? Like they're going to 900 mile journey and he just loaded them up with tons. I don't know what the, you know, sometimes we go through this and we try to figure out what today's value is. But, you know, this is millions of dollars worth of gold and, um, and, and fine stuff. The one thing, it was, it was priceless. They were, the art of article was they're precious as gold, fine polished. It's just as precious as gold, just priceless artifacts that they were they were carrying back. And so he encourages them, and then he says, reminds them that that this stuff was given as a free will offering, you know. And it's often a reminder that the things even in the church that that money comes from you guys. That's that's your, you know, you've invested in the in the church and in these things. So to use it wisely and to honor those things. And so he tells them that. Um, and again, it's a free will offering. Now, I, I want to just highlight really quickly that the New Testament says that each one should give as he desires in his heart. And so not obligating, not begrudgingly is what the New Testament says. And there's always an argument over, you know, is it required that we tithe a tenth percent? And the thing is, you don't find um, a, a tithe of a tenth percent in the New Testament. The word tithe is only mentioned one time. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. Um, but the concept of giving is... Really, in order to get the entire heart of God, you have to get that Genesis from from Genesis to Revelation, um, because Abraham tithed, but he tithed and he lived for, and he just did it out of his heart. But he did it 400 years before Moses was given the law, and so it wasn't a part of the law, but still was what God was was doing. And then, um, but one of the things that you do find in the New Testament and the Old Testament, apart from there was an obligatory 10% giving in the law of Moses. There were some actually other obligations that were a part of the law. In order to follow the law of Moses, you had to do where the, it was actually more like probably 30 or 40 percent by the time you, you did all the things that were required. 
But, but outside of those parameters of the law of Moses, one of the things that's consistent all the way through the Bible is a free will gift. That you give as you purpose. And that's what the New Testament says. That each one should give as he purposes in his heart. So I'd just like to point out that, you know, you, you find this consistently, consistency throughout the word of God in all these things. Um, being saved, for example. You know, how did you get saved in the Old Testament? Exactly the same way you got saved in the New Testament. It's always, it's, it's, it's the same all the way through the Bible. You know, we think, oh, the Old Testament was the law of Moses. Well, no, you, the, law, the Old Testament, you were still saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, you were just looking forward to Messiah. Today we're looking back. It was accounted. Abraham believed that it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so, again, in tithing and giving, these principles are just consistent with who God is because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we don't have Old Testament and New Testament rules. We have the same heart and the same God. We have some practical issues that, that, that separate Old and New Testament and, the, and things that, um, you know, really for the, in the law that were specific to the, the nation of Israel who was two million people coming out of slavery. And so God said, you know, don't poop where you sleep. Well, they've been slaves in Egypt, in Egypt for, God, you know, that's not things I have to do to please God. Those were practical things. And so you find in the law of Moses, many practical, you know, they weren't allowed to eat pork. Well, you know, it, they didn't know how to cook it. It would make them sick. And if you didn't cook it right, it, it's, it's unhealthy for you. And so there's practical things um, in the law. But, but you still find, again, the consistency of, of the heart of God through, through all the Bible, old and new. Okay? And then the same principle in giving. We're almost done, you guys. I, I know you guys are wrapping up. We're almost done. Let me, let me finish this. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers and the house of, in Jerusalem and the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites receive the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem, the house of God. So he even told them, you know, when you get there, you're going to weigh it when you get there. And then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy. So again, the hand of the Lord was upon us, and from the ambush along the road. So there, there's ambush along this road, and, and he said God delivered us. And so we came to Jerusalem, we stayed there three days. Um, what, what do you think it was like for Ezra? I think it would have been awesome when Ezra got there. He'd never been to Jerusalem. He sees the temple. Like this guy's heart was for God and for serving God and for ministry. And so he had to just be in awe. I can remember the first time I seen I seen the Temple Mount. And uh, when you when you do your well, the first time you go to Israel, when you go to Israel, usually the way we do it is we we do Tel Aviv and um, and then we head up into the Galilee and we spend three or four days in the Galilee. And then you make it in like on day five into Jerusalem. And when you come in, you come to this lookout point and you stop and everybody gets off the bus and you, you, you know, for me, it was just about an evening time too. So it was perfect. And for the first time I'm standing there and I'm overlooking Jerusalem and I'm, 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 I'm seeing Temple Mount. And I hate the fact that the Dome of the Rock is because that's a Muslim site, but that's the icon that's there. And so you see that and. And, and I just burst into tears, really. And I was by myself. I wasn't by myself in a big group, but I was alone in there. And, and, and just thinking, man, there, there's the place where my Lord died for me. And when I saw it personally for the first time, it was emotional, you know, to be there. I'd read about it a million times. I'd imagined it. Now I'm there and I'm seeing it. And so Ezra is there and he's seeing it now for the first time. I imagine his heart leap for joy. And then it says um, in verse 33, Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of God by the hand of Mermer, the son of 
Uriah the priest, and with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas. With them were the Levites, Josabad the son of Jeshua, and Odiah the son of Binul, Binui, Binui. Somebody help me out. Just try it for me. Binui, Binui, Benihini, Benihana. With the number and the weight of everything, all the weight of the was written down at the time. So again, this is the third party accounting. This is accountability. Hey guys, I sent you with this much. How much did you arrive with? And and they were accountable for the things that belonged to the Lord. And the children of the house who had been carried away captive, who had come to the captivity, offered burnt offerings, the God of Israel, twelve bulls, seven lambs. Um, all this was a burnt offering to the Lord, and they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors and the rain beyond the river, so they gave support to all the people in the house of God. That support was from the locals. And so when they got there, they would have delivered that letter from King Artaxerxes and um, and the local people that were there. There had been opposition before, but they were um, in support of this, this new work and this new group that had shown up. And so it is a, a blessing, you know, when the church is a blessing to our community, and that's what they were. Amen? Yeah, there's no chance. I, I really thought I was going to finish that. I guess we'll do 9 and 10 next week. What's next week? Actually, next week there's no Wednesday night service, right? That's the one between, yeah. We take one Wednesday night off a, uh, a year, and that's the one between Christmas and New Year's. So next Wednesday night, you guys enjoy your families, and I'll see you back here um, the following Wednesday. All right, let's pray. Father God, we come before you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day, God. And Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you, Lord. I'm always so impressed, God, that we're reading um, these stories that are thousands of years old and they're relevant for us today, God. They're important, Lord. They're life-changing. They're, they're the Word of God and how the providence of God recorded and, and, and orchestrated these events that just apply to our lives. How you spoke to men like Ezra and you, you gave him the wisdom to, to, to pray, to fast, to gather his men, to meet, Lord, a heart that wanted to speak to you, a heart that was in the Word, a heart that wanted to teach the Word of God. And Father, we thank you. We thank you that this that, the, that Jesus did the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, you still desire these same things. And Lord, we don't make a separation uh, of you and, and, and things of God between the Old and New Testament, Lord, that you're the same God and you love us the same and the wisdom is the same. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you how we grow as we read and study the Old Testament. Lord, we thank you that um, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And Lord, we ask that you bless each week. We ask you bless our Christmas Eve service here in two days. And Lord, bless everyone's Christmas and their families, God. And uh, we thank you for our kids who are preparing for the, for the Christmas program. That you bless them as well in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.